mean, this is a film born from utter failure and um, complete lost in the wildernessness. Hello, everyone. Welcome to On Assignment. I'm Lisa Cohen. And I'm Abby Wright. Hey, Lisa. Hello, Abby. We're back from our summer break, and today we're bringing you the first and what we hope will be a three-part series highlighting women we love. We'll introduce you to some amazing women journalists, women who are out in the field covering the big stories all around the world, women who blow us away. Today, you're going to hear a really wonderful conversation from our last Film Friday screening in the spring with Kirsten Johnson, who stopped by to show us her autobiographical film, Camera Person. It was a really great end to the Film Friday series. She's she's just a pestle. That's the best way to describe her. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker and uh, really known for her cinematography. Uh, she's traveled to over 86 countries in her 25-year career as a filmmaker. She's worked on the Academy Award-winning film Citizen Four. She's worked on The Invisible War, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, just a few of her credits, Women, War and Peace, uh, and Fahrenheit 9-11, among many others. She's really, um, these are a, a bunch of films in hot zones all around the world. Right, and amazingly, this is her directorial debut. Uh, Camera Person was also an official selection for the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. It's a film that I would really more call an experience in the true sense of the word. It's, there's no narration. There's, there's no specific plot. There's no arc. There's no factual information, in fact, just geographical locators that tell you where she was at that moment in the world. It's a collection of moments from her work in these past films, and it's mostly raw footage. Right, and it can be a little disconcerting in the beginning if you're unaccustomed to watching these kind of outtakes. It can be disorienting. You just feel like you're watching random scenes at first. Right, and in fact, it was a little bit irritating. I remember watching it at the screening. I was like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. I need clarity. I need information. And then you're watching it, and it really helps when you're in a big room and it's dark and it's really loud. She actually asked us to play it really loud. Um, as the film moves on, you start to feel like you're having this, it's hard to describe even, it's this rare kind of delicious experience, you're behind the scenes, which is a term we hear all the time, but this felt like that much more present. You're just a little bit enveloped by the Well, footage. you feel like you're with her, I think, yeah. and a lot of that is because of the audio. Typically, you don't hear what the camera person is thinking or feeling or muttering under their breath. And when you hear her, you know, she's running up a hill carrying the camera, you hear her heavy breathing. Right. Or, you know, when she sees a child about to have an accident, she's holding her breath, and then you hear her exhale with relief, right. sometimes or not. And it feels like that's that's the story. That becomes the story in and of itself. Right. Um, her story, you become, you feel a part of her story. Right, right. So we are going to try to give you some context because there are some moments that need clarification in, the, in this conversation you're about to hear. Uh, the conversation starts with Kirsten referencing footage she shot in Bosnia, which is threaded throughout the film. And now Kirsten Johnson in conversation with Professor Betsy West. What a beautiful film. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. 
Um, I, I, just I also just wanted to acknowledge um, my incredible producer, Marilyn Ness, who teaches here. And I also wanted to acknowledge Pamela Hogan, who teaches here also, Yay. who um, I shot the Bosnia footage with. I just want to start off with having you tell us how this film happened, because I understand that, that it really was kind of a setback in one project that then led to uh, this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a film born from utter failure and um, complete, uh, you know, lost in the wildernessness. Basically, I started making a film in Afghanistan in 2009, and I was working with a couple of young people uh, with their full complicity, and by the time I finished the film in 2012 and showed it to both of them, the young woman said, I no longer feel safe being in this film. And so part of that was the political change in Afghanistan, but more importantly, I would say it was the change in the world as we know it, where uh, there is internet access everywhere in the world and distribution of anything we shoot to anybody in the world. So I come from the generation that as to you, where we could promise to people, you know, you are a political dissident, you are accusing your father of domestic abuse, whatever it is, we can keep it from your village or your country or your town and you can speak truthfully. And that's over now. Um, so basically I'd worked on a film for uh, three years and put my heart into it and then I had to stop making it. So your initial reaction to this must have been just uh, me and my editor were just like, oh, <laughs> we just wanted to die, but then what are you going to do? I mean, as always with all of these things, like, it's relative. It's not me worried about, uh, am I never going to get married? Am I going to lose my life? Are the Taliban going to threaten my parents if this movie goes out into the world? So, yeah, big deal, Kirsten. Like, you don't get to make a movie. So I initially tried to remake it without the young woman, with a voiceover, set only in Afghanistan. And we made a version of that that I took to the Sundance um, composer and um, edit, you know, sound design edit lab, and all the composers loved it. They were like, this is great. And then I took it to the edit lab, and all the editors were just like, what is this pretentious mess that you have made? <laughs> and I remember just weeping, um, sort of thinking, I don't have a film here and I can't salvage this. Um, but in the course of having those conversations with those editors, I don't know why, but I told the story of being in Jasper, Texas. And everyone said, oh, do you have more stories like this? And I said, yeah, I got a few more stories like this. Um, and at that point, we had this weird idea, oh, we'll make a film about Afghanistan where I tell stories from other places over the Afghanistan footage. Like that would have made a lot of sense. Um, and I tried that for a while. <laughs> but then I got curious whether the stories that I had been telling for years at cocktail parties were true or not. So I was like, huh, well, let me go see what's in the Jasper footage. Your own memory. How was your yeah. own memory? So just to set that up a little bit, what Kirsten is referring to here is footage that she shot for a documentary called The Two Towns of Jasper, really an unbelievable um, film that aired on POV. And it won a DuPont Award. It won a DuPont. And if you haven't seen it, you should you really should see it. It's remarkable. Yes. And again, this is one of those moments when you feel like you're just there, you're with her and you're experiencing it for yourself. Because... These are these long takes. It's not actually raw footage. There are some edits, but 
much longer than what you see in the actual film. What you're about to hear is the prosecutor going through the evidence for the James Byrd Jr. case. So if you don't know that case or if you don't remember that, that's an African-American man who he was chained to a pickup truck and he was dragged around Jasper, Texas until he died. It's, it's incredibly eerie. These, all these items are the clothing taken from James Byrd's body. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidentiary value to these items, uh, but it, it's always important that things like this be admitted into the courtroom. One of the things that we did in this trial was make up these booklets with 13 pictures to establish specific evidentiary points. Could you describe a couple of the key pictures in that you felt really made your case? There's... There's one picture that's about the third one in it that uh, shows all of the extensive dragging marks on the body. And one look at that picture and you realize how painful it must have been and how much torture was involved. Up next, we'll hear her talk a little bit about why she felt the need to go back and look at her outtakes. One of the things for me that I know and students who work with me knows like I'm really intense in the present and then can I tell you where I was yesterday well, I don't know you know um, and so I was really questioning that sort of worried about memory in a certain way um, but then the really dramatic thing that happened was that I reached out to all these different directors I'd worked with and uh, we spent many months putting together a cut and we put it together and it was two and a half hours long and we now affectionately call it the trauma cut but it was completely unwatchable and I did not expect it would be unwatchable and that's where I really had to pause and say what does this mean that I can't even see what my work is or what I've been doing. Unwatchable and, why? Oh, I was just horrific. I mean it's just brutal. Um, it you know not unlike this film. I mean, it still had like five <laughs> genocides, uh, you know, a, f a couple of rape stories, uh, you know, baby on the edge of life or death. All of those things were in it, but it was brutalizing. There was sort of no, it was relentless and there was nothing else to it. So, so that was a, a turning point. You talk about all yeah. the, the, you know, horrific places that you went to and that, that you have shot, talked about kind of balancing, um, telling those stories and yet giving people dignity. Um, how, how do you do that? Well, I mean, honestly, the thing that I do experience when I'm out in the world is like, I really enjoy myself. I really enjoy traveling. I really enjoy being in the world. Um, I love being with people. And so what I had lost in the making of this film was I just had gotten to this really self-flagellating mode where I was just like, I'm not doing enough. Films aren't doing enough. At a certain period in time, everyone was calling me saying, can we make the inconvenient truth of Hunger in America, Darfur. Like everybody wanted me to work on a film that was going to change the world very explicitly. Um, and I was starting to say like, are we making any change? How does this impact the people that we filmed with? And so I was really in this mode of I haven't done enough, I haven't done enough. And then what was great when the editor uh, took the material, we'd come to the idea we're gonna try it with no voiceover. 
And when he put together this cut, there was all of me enjoying myself in the world in the cut. And I could see it from the outside, which I had lost track of. It gave it a, a lightness, a yeah. light. Yeah, it's like, I'm having fun. You, you can see me having fun, you can see me loving people, you can see people surprising me in the footage. And, and that helped me relive all of that and treasure that again. So up next, Kirsten's gonna talk about this scene in one of her films, and it's so nerve-wracking. There are these two little Bosnian boys. One's older, he looks like he's about 10, and the other one is a toddler. Like barely walking, barely talking toddler. Yeah, and he, the older boy's cutting wood with an axe right next to his little brother, and the whole time you're watching it, you're thinking, something here is going to go terribly, horribly wrong, and you're holding your breath. We're going to play you a little bit of sound from that scene, so listen closely, and you can actually hear Kirsten breathing. Right, like holding her breath. That was so, um, I, the sound of her exhaling after the little boy runs away from the axe was, um, like, that's what makes this film so incredible. Yeah. yeah. And she just keeps filming. I mean, it's almost like watching a horror movie. You want to scream at the screen, tell her to drop the camera and go take the axe away from the boys, but she doesn't. She keeps rolling and she lets the scene play out. I mean, because she is an observer after all. And you have to know uh, that both the boys are okay in the end. There weren't any accidents. But here's Kirsten explaining her thought process in that moment when she just keeps filming. When you're asking people to relive very painful stories or you're shooting very dangerous situations, you know, where does it where does it stop? I mean, the axe scene is just extraordinary. <laughs> can can you talk a little bit about that about the axe scene? At what point were you going to put your camera down? Or? I don't know if I was going to put. My, I don't think I was going to put my camera down. I think that's what that scene is about: is to show you in the moment by moment experience. I'm like, is this happening? Is this not happening? No, it's happening. It's happening. You know, and and yet. I am seeing it through the camera, it is a shot, and my brain is barely getting to the place, should I run over there and stop these boys? You know, it's like, even now when I see it, the bigger boy who when he leaves, he touches the ax handle to make sure it's really firmly embedded. It's like, those are the things, you're watching that precisely. And, um, you know, I think that moment really could have gone the wrong way. And that has happened to me. I have been filming when the moment goes the wrong way. And um, in some ways, you know, I spared all of us having to see some of those things. You kept but, some of that out of the Oh, film? yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're right at the edge, and you don't know which way things are going. Um, and it is your job as the camera person to film wide. In the edit room, you can decide that's inappropriate. We don't go that far. We cut that out. But a lot of time, and as we know, violence happens or accidents happen and they just come in from left field and you're unprepared for their entrance into the shot, right? Or into your life. 
Um, so that that was a critical scene for me because you know one it's it ends up being funny thankfully, um, but you feel my investment and yet you also see me not acting. So I think that's really critical. Uh, is that that calling into question of my choices all the time, right? I've read that as a camera person, you've said sometimes seeing the films that you shot has been a surprising experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, in some ways, is this kind of reclaiming uh, the footage that producers have gone out and made their version of the story, and now we have your version? I mean, no question what's hilarious, though, is this doesn't look anything like I thought it would. So it's not even my version. It's still not my version. Because, um, because the editor played a big role? Or no, I mean, the editor played an extraordinary role. Um, I think some part of me thought that I could come to terms with some of the loss that one experiences when one films. It's so, you know, you meet someone and you fall in love with them. Like, you know, like the guy who dis does the face dancing. Oh, we had amazing. a whole, like every morning we'd get up and like talk to each other facially. And, and you're, and you know, like I drove away from that village, like making faces at him and him making faces at me. And you, you lose people. You find people and you lose people when you film them. And so part of it for me was to go back and try to find people and, and to reclaim in some ways my experience that you know, I had gone through. Um, but then in the process of the film, I realized it's like inevitable some of the losing and it's inevitable how fragmentary this story is as much as any story is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what do you think makes a, a great camera person? <laughs> I mean, I'm so interested, I mean, I keep saying this right now, I, like, I think we are all camera people right now. We all have a phone in our pocket and we're all making decisions about when we film and we can choose to film at any moment. So obviously some of us do it professionally and we have someone with us who has a vision and we're trying to find a story. Um, but yeah, I'm just really, I'm deeply now interested in why we choose to film, when we choose to film, and then can we stay the people that we are when we are w without a camera? <laughs> and that, that's interesting to me. Well, you talked a little bit about the connection. I mean, you love people and it's, part of your filming at least, or your technique is making a connection yeah. with other people. Yeah, and I'm actually like, would love to open it up to the crowd because I feel like I'm really curious to know what people thought and what I, you know, we're tethered here, but if I was not tethered, what I would be doing is walking out into the crowd because I do feel this very like physical relationship to the world, so I like, I can stay in this spot, but at a certain point, my impulse is I would like to go be over there. I would like to go sit. You want to, to shoot sit. the backs of their heads, right? You yeah, know. I do. I want to see people in close-up. I want to change their perspective. So, so I would be moving, and that's what I love about camera work is I'm allowed to move. I don't have to stay in the place that I start from, and I can discover someone totally new and you know, sort of sit with them and feel their energy. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. All right, well, so. we, you're not going to wander around, but yeah. we are going to bring people yeah. to you. So we, right uh, we will open up to questions. Hi. Hi. That was such a lovely 
experience to have wash over you. I would like to understand the part that your family and the interweaving of your family played in all mm. this. You have mm. twins and you introduced yeah. them and you introduced your parents. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it, it felt really essential to involve my family because, specifically because um, my mother had very explicitly never wanted to be filmed by me. And so that was an act of very strong betrayal to include her in that state in the movie. And so the sort of the ethical pressure of that and the meaning of that felt very resonant to me. Um, and I think similarly, including the kids is, you know, they have not given their permission to be in this movie. Uh, and, and it explicitly says that, right? That we, we use our, our power as filmmakers in the ways we want to use it. And people will change and be different people and what will this mean to them we cannot know. Um, and we do it for our own purposes. So I think that was my way of saying it. And then just a related question about your kids. Yeah. Just as a journalist and mother, I yeah. want to understand how it worked that you were traveling all over the world and like what the home care situation was. Right, well, I mean, uh, one, let's all notice that a woman asked this question. Uh, and I a noticed, and, and a mother, but I just want you to know that like, all of my young female students ask me this question, can I be a parent and be a filmmaker? So that's interesting, right, to me, because I do really think women spend a huge amount of their lives projecting into the future, can I do this, what will it mean for my life, if I do that, what will happen? They spend their 20s, 30s, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, but now I gotta think backwards, you know, so a lot of time, women put a lot of time into thinking whether it is possible. Um, and uh, so that's an important part of this. This film is completely out of chronology. I did not go to Yemen after I had my kids. I did not go to Afghanistan after I had my kids. But I was literally sitting in the basement folding like my one-year-old's clothes while we were talking about Edward Snowden's contact with Laura Poitras while we were freaking out, thinking that the we were being listened to as we were folding laundry, we were having like secret conversations in the basement, right? Um, so I did do really risky things when I had my children, for sure, and I went to Egypt and I went to Lebanon. Um, and I have a really extraordinary uh, situation that I am in with my family and my children that I told to the Bosnian family. I explained to the Bosnian family that I am single and that I am co-parenting my children with a gay couple. And it was so great because the translation was going very slow and long. <laughs> and I was watching their faces. And I was like, okay, gotta go. Like, this is happening, we're doing this. And then the beautiful woman who's sort of very thought, who always listens to me very thoughtfully um, when the translation was finally over, um, she said, oh, please tell the fathers of the children, I am so proud of them that they are such brave people to find a way to have children. And I was like, you know what brave is? And she said, I know what brave is. So I was like, right on. So that's for full disclosure. And there are women who babysit my children. Like right now, my child has an ear infection, and I'm here talking to you. And they there's a, a babysitter. Credit. They got a they credit got a in credit. the film. That's yeah. right. Exactly.
Uh, hi, I'm a student here uh, at Columbia Journalism School. And thank you so much for being here. Amazing stories you've been co uh, you c you've covered. Uh, I'm just curious, like personally, when you come back home after covering these stories, you know, like rape, rape victims and also you know wars, war zone stories. Uh, how do you personally, you know, digest and deal with the trauma? Yeah, I don't think I. Uh, I mean, one, I do think that I am dealing with it in the moment. That the multitasking of shooting gives you ways of managing the difficulty of what you're hearing because you're simultaneously trying to figure out how to frame, how does this fit into the story? Do we need to keep going? So your brain is mitigating some of the impact of the information as you're experiencing it. But there is no question, for me, I was deeply traumatized by what happened in Nigeria, and I still am. I was deeply traumatized by uh, what I, I saw inside the book in Jasper, Texas, and I also felt people's attitudes in Jasper, Texas, and it was deeply traumatic. And I'm, as we all are still, processing the way, like, you go through something, you experience something horrific, 25 years in the past and then here it reappears yesterday in this country or in the world and it comes up again, right? We all keep reliving all of these things, right? Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in closure. I'm not interested, like I'm interested in facing what is the difficulties and the realities of the world and being a compassionate person and figuring out what can we do to agitate for some change. And then there's other forms of tragedy they just happen to all of us. The people we love the most die, and we have to deal with that, right? And we age, and we, you know, all these things, that is what is being human. And so we're all coping with that all the time. But certainly making this film has been powerful experience, and it's powerful to share it with all of you, too. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, you want to so know if you can have a yeah, family? Yeah, you, can. you can. Yeah, you'll be a great dad. <laughs> Thank you. You'll be such a great dad. <laughs> All right, so my, the new question that I thought of uh, online was, so before the film, you told us to make sure to play it really loud. Um, yeah. And it became immediately apparent how important sound was mm -hmm. in the film. And it's something we've learned kind of countless times here is how mm -hmm. important sound is. So how much? Is thinking about sound a part of your process? Yeah, I mean, thank you for that. You will be a great dad. You should be listening to your kids. Um, no, I mean, I. It took me a really long time to realize sound mattered. I was totally a camera person who would like frame a beautiful shot, not listen to anybody, turn off the shot once it was done, frame another beautiful shot, turn off the shot, like, you know. And I worked with a couple of really patient sound people, Judy Carp, Wellington Bowler, who are extraordinary. And they'd always be like, KJ, why'd you turn off the camera then? Because something was happening. Did you hear that? And, and they'd be like, don't you want to wear your headphones? You know, and, and so like little by little. <laughs> and you know, I'd get really involved in something and the headphones would come off again and Wellington would just gently put them back on my head. And so I, was, I, I sort of, little by little was brought into realizing how much they were hearing the story and I was missing the story. And so over time, I listening has become wildly more important to me. And in the process of making this film, I hilariously forgot sound again. Um, the classic being the opening um, 
little story in the very beginning, we rewrote like 500 times. And finally we got into the sound mix and uh, Pete was just like, huh, do you really want this like annoying uh, motorcycle lawnmower sound over the beginning of your film? And and he's like, maybe you want to invite people into the movie? Like we could have birds and something lush. And he put it on and for the first time I could read the text. And it was like, oh, from the opening shot of the film, sound matters. And that was just such an extraordinary creative um, experience to watch him build that sound and how much it mattered to him and the emotional impact he brought to the film with that moment. So yeah, it's I forget and I remember and I forget and I remember, basically, yeah. <laughs> You'll be a great dad, yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, great <laughs> film. Thank you so much. I am a dog student here in mm -hmm. Colombia, and English is my second language. So mm. I find that a lot of the times when I want to express myself, I revert back to my home language. Mm. Which, what's your home language? Zulu. I'm from uh, South Africa. Nah. So I found that in your film, you've done a lot of things in Africa and in different countries where English aren't, isn't necessarily your character's first language. So I want to know how did you connect with how did you connect with them? Because yeah. um, you weren't able to speak the same language when yeah. you were using a translator, and what are the drawbacks of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I obviously very explicitly included the moment with Najib where I can't understand him, but he's making me cry, right? And um, also, hilariously, the moment in Afghanistan with the watermelon, for three years we worked with the footage and we thought he was saying, you. <laughs> And it turns out he was saying, enjoy the watermelon. <laughs> and I, we're, Marilyn is still convinced he is perhaps saying you. Um, but we don't know, right? And I, I think that that's always so interesting, this energy. Like, I can think I imagine what is going on in someone's head and, you know, and I think I can read what is happening in their eyes. Um, and I sort of love how I can go anywhere in the world and find my people. Like, oh, I know you, I wanna hang out with you, you're fun. Uh, I don't really wanna hang out with you. Like, you know, you, you can read that stuff pretty quickly, but then you can be totally wrong, too. <laughs> and I sort of love that back and forth of you think you know what's going on and then you don't. Um, and I always find there's much more going on than I ever imagined. But I, I, I think what's, what the camera allows is you get to be in silence differently from being in a conversation with someone where you you need to keep talking and you need to keep processing sometimes you can just sort of go into the abstraction of image and looking at people's bodies and looking at you know what they're doing and then that is a way of communicating right Great. yeah okay. well Kirsten, yeah. thank you so yeah, much my what an extraordinary accomplishment great film yeah, thank, thank you, you for coming thank you and uh, come back next fall, everybody, for Film Friday. Thank you to Kirsten Johnson. It was really, really wonderful to have her here. You can watch Camera Person in New York City at the IFC Center starting on September 9th. And there will be other cities to come. I'm sure you can check the website to get the schedule. Okay, Lisa, it's time for us to talk a little bit about what we've been watching lately. Um, I have something that I've been listening to, a podcast that I am 
eager to tell you a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been sucked into the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History, okay. um, which is a weekly podcast that goes back and reinterprets something from the past. Uh, in particular, he recently did a three-part series about education and higher ed in particular that I really enjoyed um, that basically looks at the way colleges and universities, especially some big Ivy universities and other prestigious institutions, allocate their money towards scholarship um, and what it says about their priorities. In particular, one episode spotlights Bowdoin College and Vassar, um, as well as Stanford University. So I really recommend it. Is it a critical essay? I mean, it's a podcast. It's not an essay. Well, uh, you know, I mean, is it is it sort of taking them on? It does take them on. I mean, it has a point of view, but it's worth asking how scholarship dollars are allocated, um, how much of a priority it is to get students from different backgrounds into these institutions in a time when students are accustomed to having fabulous dining halls mm-hmm. and beautiful, you know, grounds and gymnasiums. What happens when you instead allocate that money to bring children from different backgrounds into your institution and the effect it it has on the school to have people from different backgrounds versus having an amazing dining hall, which is important too, um, but just how, you know, the way that dollars are allocated has an impact on an institution. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, it was really interesting. Hmm. I recommend it. Okay. I uh, I recently watched Life Animated, which uh, is a documentary. It was a big hit at Sundance too this year. It's a really it's about a, a boy named Owen Suskind. He's really an, a young adult. He's autistic, and his father is Ron Suskind, who's an acclaimed author, uh, who wrote a book about this, and then they made the film. And he has this really extraordinary relationship with Disney films, and that's the book is a lot about how the Disney films that he watched over and over and over again allowed his family to actually communicate with him and then bring him out of out of his shell and he's very high functioning and he's just lovely and then the film sort of goes on from there he's he's going to leave home he's going to strike out on his own so um we're very excited to have that film here in november ron suskind is coming along with the filmmaker roger ross williams this is roger's second appearance here at the film friday series and uh it's just it's it's lovely it's very emotional um and it says a lot about what happens to autistic kids when they grow up. Looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. That's coming in November? Yes. November 11th, I believe. Sounds great. That's it for this episode. This episode of On Assignment was produced by our very own Erica Glass. Thanks, as always, to our funders at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and to Columbia. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And our sound engineer is Shep Birkin. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. Let us know what you think and review on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next time, everybody. 